Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Thank Rick Archer, and my guest today is Judith Blackstone. Hi, Judith. Hi. Good to meet you. Judith is a non-duality teacher, spiritual psychotherapist, and co-founder of Non-Duality Institute. She developed the realization process, a method of embodied non-dual realization and psychological and relational healing. In the realization process, the radical openness of non-duality is based on deep contact with the internal space of one's body. In this way, we discover an authentic, quality-rich experience of our individual being at the same time as we transcend our individuality. We realize ourselves as unified consciousness pervading everywhere. When two people have both realized non-duality, they experience mutual transparency, a single expanse of consciousness pervading them both as a unity. Judith teaches workshops and teacher certification trainings in meditation, embodiment, and spiritual psychotherapy aspects of the realization process. She is the author of Belonging Here, which I've just been reading, The Enlightenment Process, The Intimate Life, and The Empathic Ground. An audio series of the realization process is available from Sounds True. Judith's website is realizationcenter.com. And I should mention, in case you don't make it to the end of the interview, that uh, my website is batgap.com, and this is one in an ongoing series of interviews. We're over 250 of them now, and your support is appreciated. So if you go to batgap.com, you'll see a donate button there. Okay, so Judith, just, um, just yesterday somebody sent an email first expressing a great deal of enthusiasm uh, to s in seeing that you were going to be on the show. And then she said, um, I see Judith as the phoenix. She went through the fire to the ashes and raised to bring us the esoteric world of many religions in the language we understand today. Her deep compassion comes easily in every page of her books. She does not offer the appetizer and, uh, and ignore the main dish. She offers it all right there. Please tell your followers the depth of her process and how her work is born. So we'll be doing that. But <laughs> what does this uh, phoenix metaphor refer to? I think she probably is referring to the fact that this work came out of my own deep healing process. I had been a dancer, for professional dancer, for many years from my childhood into my mid-twenties, and then I injured my back quite badly. And maybe because I was just in my mid-twenties, I was quite sure that life was over. Made the rounds of doctors, finally had my spine fused surgically. Not a great idea. And that taught me quite a bit. For one thing, it taught me that if one part of the body is held stable like that, there's going to be a rigidity everywhere in the body, a kind of matching rigidity. So it taught me many, many things. But mostly, it taught me that I had to attune to myself. And I had to realize myself on an extremely subtle level in order to start to shift into some sort of sense of ease and comfort in myself. Uh, by the way, they fused me in an off-center position, whereas I had been pretty well aligned as a dancer. They fused me in, a, in the off-center position that happened during the injury. So I was quite disoriented. It was really quite a bit of stuff to go through. And, um, and so this work really came out of that very direct healing process. At the same time, as I was kind of lying on the floor of my dance studio and, and opening and hoping for some sort of solution to my dilemma, people were coming to study dance with me. That's how I earned a living. So 
I began to teach them the very strange things that I was discovering about the body and about this more subtle, subtle dimension of ourselves. So I think that's the phoenix rising. I'd like to say that I, you know, I rose fully, and, uh, but actually I rose kind of tinged and <laughs> was a pretty decrepit little phoenix there for, for quite some time. And so along with the spontaneous responses that I got to my own need for healing, I also studied Buddhism. I studied, went to India, you know, studied several Hindu uh, lineages. And, um, and, and so I began to, to have a, a fuller understanding and a, and a fuller experience of, of these subtle experiences that were coming to me as part of my healing. Did you ever consider having uh, another surgery to refuse yourself in a better alignment? Never, ever. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, but so you're, you were kind of like permanently fused in an off balance that's right. kind of position. That, hmm. That's right. I have scoliosis, uh -huh. but it had been what they call well compensated as a dancer. Yeah. And I had made myself fantastically strong in order to support the weak spine. And I had to let go of all that in order to get to actual healing of myself. And so a lot of process of letting go, a lot of learning about letting go. Did you sort of, um, I, I guess initially you were kind of just teaching yourself, uh, exploring on your own, huh? With, with various procedures and practices and just kind of like feeling it out. And then at a certain point you decided you needed some more formal instruction. I had a handful of dance students. So it was, you know, I wasn't just doing wasn't just on my own, but I was sharing it with them and seeing the difference that these things made in their bodies and being. Um, and, um, and then, you know, it wasn't any sort of conscious volitional process. After a while, I began to feel more, more and more sensitive. And uh, the city, I was living in New York City at the time as a dancer, became intolerable for me. And so I just happened to open, you know how these things go, I just happened to open a the Village Voice newspaper, saw an advertisement for a Zen monastery upstate in upstate New York. And I thought, well, I'll go up there and see what it's like. And I didn't know anything about Zen. I had been doing some reading and I had been to India. Uh, so I knew something about uh, Bhakti Yoga and Advaita Vedanta, but not a whole lot. And so I went up there. Is that up near Rochester? No, it's, it's near to Albany. It's near Woodstock, where I now live. Where I now live. It's about a half hour from Woodstock. It's about an hour from Albany. Now, the way I got to India, which was before that, was 1975, was that I had been planning. I was really desperate for healing. And I read a book about a psychic surgeon in Brazil, Laura Valdefreitas, who had healed a dancer of a back injury by making a column of ectoplasm, a stream of ectoplasm, through her spine which brought the spine into alignment. And I thought, boy, that is exactly what I need. You know, yeah. some good, strong stream of ectoplasm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I wrote to Lord Valdefreitas and he wrote back and he said, of course, he couldn't promise that he could heal me, but I was welcome to come. And I was also welcome to sponsor him to come to the United States. He'd be glad to do that if I wanted to sponsor him. And of course I was hesitant. I was pretty desperate, but this was a man who remove tumors supposedly by putting a you know taking a spoon a tin spoon and putting it into the body and just scooping out that tumor so i was, I was a little hesitant and at that point my ex-husband came by and heard that i was planning to do this extremely adventurous uh, trip 
um, as part of my healing. And he said, oh, just wait a second. He ran back to his apartment, got a picture of Sai Baba, put it in front of me and said, pray to the picture. This is a long story. Of course, I was brought up as an atheist. I would never pray to a picture or anything in my life, uh, certainly not a picture. But I did that. And within a month, I was on a plane to India. And that's how that whole voyage began. I did work with Sai Baba for many years. You know, of course, he, like many of these big teachers, has fallen into disgrace. I don't know what to make of that, but he was extremely helpful to me. And he also taught a very simple and very profound version of Advaita Vedanta, kind of mixed into this extremely simplistic teaching. So that was the very beginning, the very roots of my spiritual path, my study of Eastern religion. Yeah, it's interesting how some of these gurus have so much going for them, they really seem to help people a lot, but then there's this kind of puzzling, shady side, you know, which you can't quite reconcile with what, with what you experience with them in person. It's extremely puzzling. Yeah, I mean, that's a topic for a whole other interview. Yes, yeah, interview. And, and I don't really have much to say about it. I have no idea what that is. Yeah, I mean, either. I've given it a lot of thought, but it's uh, one of those head scratchers that, but, you know, it's good not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's right. And that was, that was kind of the root. I mean, that's how I got to uh, more formal teachings. Which were? Which were the, the Hindu, the kind of Bhakti, the Advaita Vedanta, mm -hmm. and then, then to the, a few years later in 1981 uh, to the Zen monastery. And then I moved out to Woodstock and we, are, we live down, my husband and I, down the road from the seat of the uh, Karmapa in the United States, Kagyu, ah. uh, seat of the Karmapa. And so, you know, we did quite a bit of hearing teachings there. I never really felt that I became either a Hindu or a Buddhist. Right. I never felt that I joined anyone. They were all extremely helpful to me. And, um, and there always seemed to be, I don't know, something missing. A lot of people can say that these days, that they've der derived tremendous inspiration from Hinduism or Buddhism, Buddhist teachers, but they wouldn't consider themselves Hindus or Buddhists. You know, they're just yes. th this whole spiritual but not religious category. Yes, that's yeah. right. Although you can also be religious in the sense of, you know, devotional and believing in God and so on and so forth, but you still don't feel this close affiliation with a 2,000-year-old tradition in terms of its rituals and its, you know, holidays and all that, that stuff. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's cultural origins. Yeah. yeah. I get the impression from reading your book, and I also listened to your interview with Tammy Simon, that at some point you had a, a major breakthrough some shift or awakening took place, which was sort of no looking back. So could you relay that to us? Sure. The year I lived at the Zen monastery, 1981 to 2, that's a wonderful practice in, in that you have to do a lot of meditation. You know, if you're not on your pillow at 5 in the morning, they come and knock on your door. And if you still say, please, no, they throw you out of the monastery. Wow. So it's a lot of meditation. Of course, one week a month is sashin, and there's extremely rigorous meditation practice. And that was wonderful for me. It was very grounding. The trips to India and the work in, with the bhakti teacher was very important to me psychologically and helped heal a lot of the heart wounding, helped me open my heart but didn't do much to ground me. Oh, uh, and Bhakti teacher was Sai Baba or some other? Yes, was Sai Baba. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And Bhakti, in case people don't know, is devotion. Yeah, yes. It's an emotional, devotional kind of path. 
That's right. He was really teaching love and he was emanating a tremendous amount of love. Right. And that was very helpful. And he was also doing some really precise psychological work individually with people, even though he had thousands and thousands of people mm -hmm. there. So quite an amazing thing. So that was uh, very helpful in terms of the psychological healing, but, you know, was still my kind of ungrounded and interestingly, even after all those years of dancing, rather disembodied mm -hmm. self. So the Zen meditation was very helpful and uh, in terms of really opening me to that subtle dimension that I had begun to glimpse in my own healing process a few years before. So one day, I used to sneak out in the afternoon. I was never a great student of anything. I used to sneak out in the afternoon and go to a nearby creek. This is in Mount Tremper, New York, and it's extremely beautiful there, about 20 minutes from Woodstock. And the creek in the springtime was just magnificent. And then I would sit there and meditate. And one day I realized that the rocks were, were weightless, that they were made of space. And it was really quite different than anything I'd ever seen before. And then I just glanced up and realized that there was this uh, just uh, amazing oneness of everything, just like everything as if shot through, pervaded is the word I use now, by this uh, single unified transparency. Then after that, I could pretty much bring that up all the time. And after a while, I realized I was just there. So that's the breakthrough. I had always been able to sort of draw something into me that I felt was a kind of numinous presence. And I used to do that as a dancer before going on stage. It's just as a way to deal with stage fright and that kind of thing. But now I realize that that numinous presence wasn't just something out there. It was really something all through myself and everything around me. One thing I found fascinating in your book is how attuned you are to kind of subtle perception or subtle energies. Like someone will walk in and you'll see that they have a lot of light in the upper part of their head and above their head, but not, not much going on in the lower part of the body. And it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Carlos Castaneda books where Don Juan you know, spoke of people as having this luminous egg around them. And he can tell a whole lot about them just by checking out the luminous egg and seeing if there were right. dark spots in it and, and, right. and stuff like that. So yes. I guess that's something that has developed with you over time since, since that awakening and in the process of you know, being a therapist and working with so many people? Yes, that's something that began before the awakening to unified consciousness. As I say, I was teaching dance and I was working with these kind of interesting, subtle experiences that I was having in my own healing. And I began to realize that people were actually more present in parts of their body than others. One night I had a dream, and it is, it's a tiny bit like the Castaneda. Uh, it's, I had a dream that people were like Christmas trees with lights strung at various intervals and places in, in their body. And so I was beginning to be aware of that in the early stages of the healing process. I mean, there are accounts in your book of where you're, you're sitting with some um, client and you're behind them and, and you're not even, they can't even see you. And, you know, you ask them to sort of occupy your body, to be sort of present in your body. And you can tell whether they're doing it or not uh, just by perceiving it, I guess. Present uh, in their own body. You yeah, mean. well, there's the present in their own body. And then at a certain point, I think you asked this woman to sort of also be present in your body as well simultaneously. And you could sort of tell from your from your subjective, correct me if I'm if I misunderstood that portion, but you could sort of perceive whether that was happening or not. Uh, so it seems like you're very attuned to subtle perception. 
I do want to just correct that because I'm definitely not asking people to be present in other people's bodies. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm helping people attune to a, what I'm going to call a dimension of consciousness that we can experience pervading our own body and other people's bodies at the same time. Yes. And in doing that, we can actually get some sense of what's going on in that person's body, but not by entering into them. Yeah, that's... Uh, staying in our own body. I understood that that was what you meant, but I just didn't yeah. explain it very well. <laughs> well, since so many sensitive people are able to actually be present in other people's bodies, and it's a, it's a different kind of maneuver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of reminds me of a scene from Good Morning Vietnam where Robin Williams has to get up at six in the morning to start his radio show and he's walking down the hall and he says, I'm not even in my body. <laughs> and interestingly, none of us are entirely in our bodies. And that's just a very interesting thing that for pretty much everyone I've ever worked with and, and the people who come to work with me are already usually pretty experienced in various meditation lineage and so forth. For almost everybody, it's a process to inhabit the internal space of the body. Yeah. And we're going to talk a lot about what that means and all. Do you find that sometimes spiritual people are even less inhabiting their, uh, the body than other people? Like the, their spiritual practice kind of um, detaches them from it? That can be the case. For one thing, if we have a lot of energy, either that we've cultivated or that we were simply born with, or particularly if we were born with it, and we find that our childhood environment is abrasive in some way. And for a sensitive child, it doesn't need to be, you know, brutal for it to be abrasive. Uh, one, of our, one of our defensive maneuvers is to leave the body. And we can leave above, we can go to the side, we can just simply vanish. Now, if there's, if there's a great deal of trauma, like severe trauma, then we know, you know, then we call that dissociation. And that's the main defense for people who have suffered through severe trauma. So that's part of it. And then a spiritual practice can seem to be exacerbating that, can seem to be intensifying that. It happens that if we meditate on our own for long periods, 30 years, 40 years, you know, we sit in the back of 200 people without uh, any guidance, or we meditate on our own, we will usually meditate where we're most open. So if we've been hanging out above our heads, we'll just keep on increasing that, right? We'll just get more and more uh, organized in that fragmented pattern. And then, of course, some spiritual techniques seem to be instructing you to leave your body and go up. And then, of course, people are cultivating that. When we say you're inhabiting your body or you're leaving your body or whatever, what is this we, what is this entity that is actually inhabiting or leaving? Are we talking about the attention? Are we talking about some jiva or subtle, subtle body kind of being disintegrated or integrated or with the gross body? Or what are we actually talking about? Yes, a really good question, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And I try very hard, although it's challenging, to avoid any sort of metaphysical claims uh, because, simply because of the fact that I don't know. Like, I don't know what this pervasive space is. I know that we can experience it. And it happens that there's such a variety of interpretations. Many different teachings, especially in Buddhism and Hinduism, refer to this ground of being or 
or Rigpa, or this Buddha nature, this pervasive space, self with a capital S, all of these names for this pervasive space. But some teachings say that this is actually the nature of the universe, this pervasive space. Mm -hmm. And as we open, we realize ourselves as this fundamental nature of the universe, that it's really there. And we're just experiencing that. And other teachings, particularly within Buddhism, will say that this is our own mind that we're experiencing, just our own mind, clearly, in an unmodified way, along with the content of experience. Now, those are two radically different interpretations of the same experience. Mm. So when we talk about being in the body and what or who that is being in the body, I can't answer that. I don't know what it is, but I do know that it's quite a different experience to be aware of the body or to be in the body really a very different experience. And in this work, in the realization process, I'm helping people to be in the body because we seem to need to be in the body in order to experience the oneness of fundamental consciousness or pervasive space, pervading our own being and everything around us. We need to be there. Okay? Um, that's, that's part of the oneness, right? We are part of the oneness. If I look to a traditional teaching to compare this to, I think it most resembles Atma and Brahman in the Hindu system, Atma being the, the true self, the, the authentic being, and Brahman being the pervasive space, and Atma and Brahman being identical. Mm -hmm. That philosophy seems to fit best with what I experience. A lot of people don't pay much attention to the whole idea of the body, but you know, Christ said that the body is the temple of the soul, and, and obviously yogic practices make a big fuss about tuning the instrument of the nervous system so as to be able to have you know, non-dual awareness and so on. Um, and there are so many different approaches with yoga and diet and so many things one can do. Um, so, but your, your approach seems to be primarily an attentional, not intentional, but attentional thing where, and it's not like one of these techniques where you, you feel, be aware of your feet, be aware of your knees. It's more like you're actually getting people to somehow center their awareness or their attention within the space of the feet or the legs or the knees or the pelvis or whatever, and to somehow as if have that be your vantage point or something. Yeah, in a, in a way. I mean, uh, we certainly use attention as part of the practice. I mean, it can be described as total integration of body and mind. And some of the Japanese Zen philosophers have talked about that. Total integration. So it's not definitely not a holding of attention in the body. The experience feels like we're actually attuning to something that's already there, to some subtle level of consciousness or being that's already there in the body that we can attune to or evoke and help cultivate. It's not so much, oh, now I'm going to be, now I'm going to attend to my feet, actually being there. I don't even like to use the word awareness for it. Because we open to fundamental consciousness with our whole instrument, our whole being, it's not just awareness in the, in the sense of what's around our head or what our head is doing. It's also a ground of emotion. It's a ground even of physical sensation interestingly, and it's, it's a blend of, of all of that. So probably being is a better word for it than, than awareness. Um, we're using focus and attention and, and that sort of thing in order to get there. But once we're there, it's just being or presence is another word for it. Being present, living within the internal space of the body. How long would it take to actually put us through a little exercise where you 
Is it appropriate to do in the context of an interview like this, where we can spend a few minutes um, trying to experience what you're talking about? Well, I do have a very short exercise just to possibly demonstrate for you the difference between being aware of the body and being and being in the body. And that I can do in just a, a minute. Do you want me to do that? Yeah, let's do it. I think it'll help to make it more concrete what you're talking about. Okay, so sitting there, mm -hmm. rest your hands on your legs. So palms down, okay. just resting your hands wherever they are on your legs. And now let yourself become aware of your hands. And in becoming aware of your hands, you may notice how cold or how warm they are. You might notice how relaxed or how tense they are. And so aware of your hands. And now enter into your hands. See if you can feel that you're actually living within the internal space of your hands. So you may have felt some kind of shift from being aware of the hands to being, to being in them. And that's the shift that we're making throughout the whole body, being in the feet, in the legs, in the whole body. I've had experiences in meditation where I actually really literally feel like I'm down in my legs or something. But usually that's rare. And usually it's more just more you know, kind of a depth and expansiveness and there's not any real um, orientation to any part of the body. Although, since I've been reading your book in the last week, I've kind of had more attention on the body and in the body during meditation and found myself kind of like just favoring uh, kind of a subtle exploration within the body. I don't know if that's what you intend, but it seems to have enhanced the, the quality of the experience. You know, I'm making a distinction in this work between matter, energy, and and this pervasive space. Mm -hmm. And and that's an interesting distinction. Uh, it's a distinction in the way we can experience ourselves, right? So we can experience ourselves as physical matter. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we feel pretty separate from everything, mm -hmm. right? We can experience ourselves as energy. And most sensitive people do grow up experiencing themselves as energy, as that kind of streaming and pulsing and vibrating. And we can meditate in our energy system, and that will become even more fluid and, and expanded and so forth. Now, we can also attune to ourselves in an even more subtle level than energy, and that's this pervasive stillness. And that pervasive stillness pervades the body and the environment as a whole. And that means that we then find ourselves in our body as a whole. It's a, it's a dimension of unity. So we experience our whole internal space as a unity. Now, when we get there, when we know ourselves as fundamental consciousness, I'm calling it fundamental consciousness. You can probably tell in this work, but it has a lot of different names. When we know ourselves as fundamental consciousness, then we get to an even more subtle level of our energy system a very, very fine vibration uh, that seems to be actually inseparable from the stillness so that we experience the stillness and this kind of radiance of the stillness at the same time. That's one thing to put in the mix in terms of understanding the work. And we do get to this, our whole internal being at once. I just heard it described 
in a book by Yuasa, a Japanese philosopher, where he's talking about how the internal space of the body becomes a radiant coherence as it's pervaded by the transcendent. And that's a really interesting thing because it means that we become whole within ourselves at the same time as we become one with everything else. It means that we don't need to eradicate our self-experience, right? We don't disappear. In fact, we become juicier. We become more present and more aware of ourselves as, even as an individual, but not in an abstract way, in this kind of experienced way. It's interesting you should say that uh, because there's so many people, I mean, you founded the Non-Duality Institute, and there, there's so many people who, in the name of, in, of non-duality, keep emphasizing over and over that there is no individual, and being no individual, there is no free will, and that's their whole shtick, you know? That's right. <laughs> How do you juxtapose yeah. what you say with that? Yeah, that teaching really concerns me. I think it's even a misunderstanding of the teaching of selflessness. That's my opinion. But it's a tends, and the people who are hearing that instruction, to produce a greater schism between self and object than even before, right? Because in order to say there's, you know, thoughts without a thinker, or, you know, just, a, or pain without someone experiencing that pain, we not only let go of our grip on our thoughts and all, which I think is the purpose of that teaching, mm -hmm. but we also do a second, and you can watch people do it, kind of a second maneuver where we eradicate ourself, we try to eradicate ourself, and we're just out there in the content of experience. And that's creating a, a split in, in something that's already split. So I think it's, um, it's a teaching that, especially as a, well, as a non-duality teacher, and as a, as a psychotherapist, it really concerns me as people try to erase themselves. One of the problems with it is that we can't erase ourselves. You know, if we could, all right, <laughs> but we actually can't. So that person who is in pain, right, that person who is frightened, who has a history of trauma, that person is still there and will find its way out in, in various ways. So psychologically, it, it's injurious, I believe, as a teaching. And spiritually, it can, if it's interpreted in a certain way, prevent you actually from realizing the oneness of self and other. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. You may know who Scott Killaby is. He wants to have a discussion with me about this because he, he says he gets calls and emails from people on a regular basis who have, in a way, become casualty cases as a result of that emphasis. Yes, uh, that's right. It, it really exacerbates people's problems and disassociates them even more, as, you, as you've just been saying. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I think there's, that there's more and more understanding of that coming in, which is just a, a wonderful thing. Yeah the word embodiment is getting a lot more in vogue and, and people are coming to appreciate the importance of it. Yeah. You know, I think if you look at the main teachings, you know, it's interesting, a student of mine, someone who just took a training with me, coming from a Zen lineage, he said to me, if your knee hurts, do you say that's my pain or do you say that's just pain? And I said to him, I say it's my pain. He said, why? That's horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the wrong, wrong answer, it's the wrong yeah. answer. And that's right in there is, is where the problem is. I looked up for him, you know, the teachings of Rinzai, who's, of course, the founder of the Rinzai sect, one of the main two sects in Zen Buddhism, uh, Lin Chi or, or Rinzai. He's so clear when he says to his students, the one who's standing before me now, he says, that's the one who's no different than the Buddhas. The one who's hearing me now, that's the one who's no different than Buddha. He's very clear on that. This is not something that's 
not us. This is who we are, and we are that. That's us, and we're that. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes use examples like, uh, would you rather whack a rock with your with a hammer or whack your knee with a hammer? I mean, you're obviously going to, yeah. you know, and if some guy over in Afghanistan breaks his leg, that's his experience. I'm not experiencing it, yes. you know, so there is definitely a localization, however cosmic you like to, you would like to think you are. There's yeah. a sort of a, a personalization yeah. to our experience and you can't deny it. That's right. So it's common sense. It's also quite important in terms of being whole and unified. Psychologically, you know, as young children, we're constantly making ourselves less present in order to either feel safer or to feel that we're part of the family, right? So everybody in the family lives up here, and so we live way up here as well, right? Or, you know, everybody in the family, you know, the, the the pet dies, the dog dies, or the grandfather dies, and everyone says, oh, don't cry, nothing to cry about, nothing to cry. No, we shut down, mm -hmm. you know. And, and there's no way that we can shut down our experience. It's so interesting. There's no way we can shut down our experience without actually closing off the body. So we can't keep ourselves from crying without constricting the anatomy of crying. Right? We can't keep ourselves from seeing something. Someone says, oh, what you're seeing, that's not true. Or someone says, you know, don't look at me. Don't look at me now. We can't obey that instruction without actually constricting. Mm. So we grow up all organized. So this is just the, the normal human condition. We grow up organized and constricted. So if we're told you don't exist, <laughs> we're already old hands at that. We already know how to do that. Okay. But it's a, it's a shutting down rather than an opening. It's kind of ironic because the people who are hearing these teachings really want genuine opening. That's at right. At least they purport they do, and and um, yet it, it almost seems counterproductive sometimes what what they're going through or what they're doing. So you would say that over a lifetime, people just pile up constriction upon constriction and and end up in a in a very kind of shut down mode before they may end up beginning to seek a removal of all that all that blockage and um, I'm quite sure and we'll see what you have to say about it that that removal is not going to happen overnight it's it's take it's taken decades to build up it may take years to dismantle and to, to clear out again yeah so there's a there's a couple of things in there most of the organizing that we do we do as young children some say you know before birth but up until you know the first few years of life and uh, that's when we're very malleable and very easy to constrict. Then if we encounter similar sorts of situations that cause us to make those original constrictions, we'll constrict along those same lines. So all of those unpleasant or confusing or painful memories are all collected along those same lines of constriction. Now, they don't undo overnight. Some of them won't, they won't undo at all unless we actually go right into them and work with them there's a whole part of the realization process which is just attuning to some of these very subtle, deep sorts of organizations of being. So some of them need that sort of direct encounter. Others will fall away with the meditation work. Now, we don't need to be entirely free of these constrictions in order to realize ourselves as fundamental consciousness. You know, the more we let go of them, the fuller, the richer, the, you know, the more complete throughout our whole body is this realization. But we can come to that oneness long before we've let go of all our constrictions. 
that organization of being, that's the, that's the normal human condition. Right? So we're asking for something just a little bit more open than, than the normal human condition here. What most people seem to say is that at a certain point, that fundamental consciousness is realized. Let's say it's 51% of removal of constrictions or something. But that doesn't mean it's 100%, which is just what you're saying. And right. so that also doesn't mean that the, the full potential of that non-dual realization has been realized. It just means you've got the flavor of it. You've got the, you've got the essence of it. But there could be a vast amount of further unfolding and, uh, That's and right. clarification to take place. Yeah. Yeah. So if most of our constrictions accumulate during childhood, what about all these guys that go to, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and come back with PTSD? It seems like they've yes. taken on a whole new load of constrictions in their 20s. Probably. Yes, ab yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very most likely. And the same with someone who's in a car accident or who's raped or, you know, has some, you know, extreme sort of trauma later on in life. You know, absolutely. So we're never too old to acquire new constrictions, but a lot of the main ones, deep ones, are acquired during our childhood. That's right. Okay. And it's interesting what you're saying, to, just to sort of belabor the point a little bit, what you're advocating is, I don't know if the word confrontation would be correct, but it's sort of a, you know, turning one's attention into this stuff in order to resolve it, as opposed to this sort of detachment thing we were talking about a few minutes ago where people are told that you don't even exist and <laughs> and you know just that there is no person to realize or practice anything in fact people are specifically advised not to engage in practices by some teachers because a practice is thought to only reinforce the notion of a practicer so that's right. practices are considered counterproductive that's right <laughs> that's right yeah you have two really important issues <laughs> there in that right and one is that the psychological history is dismissed by some teachers today it's they call it story right oh, yeah. that's, just your, that's, that's just your story that's yeah. your story right <laughs> For one thing, it's a pretty good story. It's a really important story. It's how you survive. It's how you as a child managed to negotiate your environment and become who you are today. So really, as a story, really a good story. In order to release some of the deeper holding patterns that we create in childhood, we often need to know what is the purpose of that holding pattern. So for that, we need to dip into that story. What we're doing in the realization process is something really subtle. We're penetrating into the holding patterns really in such a way that they move towards the constriction. And then once that happens, we can let go a little bit and they start to unfurl. And we do that rather methodically. And it takes that very subtle focus into the constriction and letting it move into that constricted place and then letting go a little. And then as we do that over and over, the constriction becomes more conscious and more fluid. Now, we're working with the exact pathway in that sense of the constrictions. So we're a long way now from my early training where you took a bataka or a plastic bat and just hit pillows and hope for the best, right? you know, and I'm not knocking it because I, you know, that was really very releasing and, and helpful. But, but here we're doing something uh, much further along in that we're tuning exactly, and just the way body work has become more and more subtle. Here's a very subtle technique that we do from the inside on our own of finding the exact trajectory of that constriction and then letting go and letting it unfurl 
right along its exact pathway. Now, in order to do that, we often need to feel exactly what was the purpose of it and how old we feel at that time. So there we come into contact with that child's mind, that part of ourselves that did that as a response to very specific things in our environment. So there the history, you know, the, the actual memories are become very important. They're linked to these holding patterns. And what was the other? There was some oh, other... Oh, I was talking about dismissal of practices as being... Of practices, They only yeah. reinforce the notion of a practicer, which is what you're trying to get out of. Yes. According to some. That, that's another important point. Uh, practice has, has come under that kind of uh, negative scrutiny and... Um, Often by uh, people who did practices for 30 years before having right. some kind of real estate. That's right. Look, <laughs> spontaneously, you know, after 30 years, he opened, sitting there on that park bench. You know. yeah. So, right, that's right. There has come to be a very prevalent teaching now in our culture that we should not do any practice. And the, the rationale behind that is that non-dual realization is an uncontrived way of being. It's our least contrived way of being. In Zen Buddhism, they say, if you move towards it, you move away from it. And that's true. This is not something that we can imagine or construct, non-duality. This is our most open state. Unfortunately, when most people are told, just let go, or just open, this is your true nature, so just be it, most people will let go from the surface of themselves. And there we come into that important distinction between energy and, and fundamental consciousness. They'll let go from the surface of themselves, and there they are in that kind of expanded but hollow state, not present within, but dissociated really, expanded into the space around them. That, of course, is an improvement on someone who's holding themselves tight, you know, and rushing around, and, you know, but still it's not, it's not non-dual realization. So we need to do some practice in order to penetrate deeply into the internal core of the body, which I haven't talked about in this interview yet, but we're, we work in the realization process quite a bit with that subtle core, what they call in Buddhism the central channel, that's called in yoga, uh, shushumna. Right? We work a lot with that, penetrate into that, penetrate into, deeply into the whole internal space of the body, so that when we do let go of ourselves, we're letting go from deep within, not from the surface, but really from deep within our whole being. And then we do open into that spontaneous, spontaneously arising, as the Buddhists say, non-dual realization. My impression also is that a lot of the people who talk that way, anti-practice and so on, or at least the students of people who talk that way, it very often becomes a kind of largely intellectual thing or where they're, they're, they get good at talking that way. Uh, and they, right. they can become very argumentative in chat groups and all about the non-existence of the self. That's um, right. But it's not like they're not really living it, you know, and, and it's hard to convey that to somebody sometimes, especially since you've never even met them. But you just have this feeling that they're not really living it. They're speaking out of a concept. And, you know, sometimes I use arguments like from physics. Well, physics says that ultimately at the deepest level of creation, there's no gravity. So go jump off a building and see if you can prove that, you know, <laughs> that that's your reality. You don't get too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know it, it irritates me too. But even beyond that, it's, it's actually destructive, I think, to what we're trying to, and what people are, you know, it's misleading to a very sincere uh, practitioners. Yeah, confusing. One thing you were saying a minute ago 
about discovering and, and helping to release constrictions, it would seem to me that we are such a bundle of them and we don't actually know what's down there, so to speak. That Zen quote you just said, that if you're moving toward it, you're moving away from it, to me implied that if you're kind of a, a applying individual will or intention, which might be short-sighted, then you might miss the mark. So I guess my question is, to what extent can you employ nature's intelligence in enabling you to have your attention come to those things which are ready to be given attention and ready to be unraveled so as to not be just sort of mucking up the process through just individual effort which might be going off in the wrong direction? Yeah. First, I do think that there are practices that help with the letting go process that aren't going to distort the process, but that can facilitate the letting go. And, and one is that central core of the body. Which we should have you explain, because <laughs> you keep alluding to cause, it. Because so. I keep alluding to it. Yeah, you know, that core of the body. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you know, I think that there are practices just like meditation. If you sit and meditate, in Zen Buddhism, for example, they have a shikantaza meditation, which is a meditation without any sort of object, without any sort of technique. And you just sit, but you are just sitting there. It's not. It's not easy. You're not just drinking a cup of tea. You're you're sitting, and um, and breathing and sitting still. And then there's a kind of automatic sort of unraveling. Well, you're not going to go wrong with that. That's facilitating that natural process. It's the same with penetrating into the depths of ourselves and then letting go from there. When we let go from there, you're facilitating that natural process. That's something a little different. So I think that that's actually, you know, when they say if, if you move towards it, you move away from it, we can't replicate it. We can only open to it, but we can do things that genuinely facilitate that opening, that true letting go. In terms of the psychological process, there is an emergent process, and it's fascinating, and, and many therapists experience this working with their clients. You know, the old training was that you had a, a treatment strategy a treat, and a treatment plan. They were two different things. I forget which was which. And you knew exactly what you were going to do each time, and no matter what the client brought, you know. And that has, I think, for many therapists, just gone by the wayside at this point. And people are just sitting with that immersion process. It's an amazing thing to witness. There seems to be a natural healing process. I certainly experienced it in my own healing, you know, that, and many people will say this becomes sort of the new age common wisdom that you get what you need when you need it. And that actually seems to be the, the case, and it's an amazing thing. So in terms of the penetrating to the holding patterns, which is a technique, I pretty much trust where people want to work in themselves. So you're saying that there's a self-healing mechanism and that not only you but other therapists are learning to cooperate with that, to allow that to do its thing. That's right. Yeah. In, in terms of sequence, right? In terms of like not messing with the, the unfolding process, right? Yeah. We were talking earlier about gurus behaving badly. You know, there's this phenomenon where people can attain, apparently, an extremely high degree of realization, spiritual fullness, and yet still have some pretty serious blind spots yes. uh, and resulting in some, you know, unfortunate behavioral traits. I guess maybe the conclusion is there's not necessarily a tight correlation between higher consciousness and all the relative aspects of our lives as much as we'd like there to be and as much as some teachers have said there there is. Maybe you could discuss that a little bit. I mean, to, to what extent can we you know, go 
to uh, you know a very high degree of spiritual development and yet still have have left behind some things that really need attending to well i think part of it is what we were talking about with the constrictions i think people can be deeply wounded even traumatized sexually for example mm -hmm. and become you know open enough to realize fundamental consciousness in quite a large way and quite open in their hearts so that they're exuding love and yet be still suffering and, and terrifically constricted sexually. And maybe and, not even be aware of it themselves. And, and not aware of it, just acting out. Yeah. You know, some people have said, well, there's cultural differences about childhood sexual I don't know, that's hard to believe. I know for myself, I am definitely a better person than I was 30 years ago. Now, of course, I'm older and, you know, more experienced altogether. And life has gone nicely, you know, circumstances are good. But I believe that the openness of my heart, my emotional responsiveness, which I've cultivated, contributes to that. And altogether, I believe that the, the work that I do and have done as spiritual practices has clarified my mind. I can think better. I'm more creative, I'm more, I'm more able to express myself. I grew up, you know, as a dancer, practically mute. <laughs> Not mute at all anymore. You know, so all of those things. So definitely my own experience, and I think a lot of people probably say that, I can attest to the fact that I'm a better person. I'm less jealous, less selfish. You know, I'm just a better person. Uh, it may be that some of these huge teachers, I, you know, I mean, it is a mystery to me, and it's a mystery I experienced firsthand with Sai Baba. It's a mystery to me how someone like that can act less ethically than just anyone off the street. You know, I mean, anyone knows not to sexually abuse a, a child. That's an illness, right, if you're doing that. Mm -hmm. And it might be that the illness does come from some sort of deeply wounding sexual trauma in Sai Baba's past. I have no idea. So I don't know. And then, of course, we're still, I'm no longer part of the Sai Baba community. He managed to find the one thing that I can't tolerate. If he was just having sex with his female students, they'd be like, well, that's, you know, that's an abuse of power in my book. But Young boys. all right, yeah. abusing little boys, that's, I can't be anywhere part of anything that's anywhere near that. And of course, a lot of Sai Baba followers today would be enraged to hear you say this because they deny that it ever happened. But well, that's, that's I also what I was have close say. friends who looked into it closely, Connie Larson and Tim Conway, and it's, it's pretty well established. But that's what I was going to say. They're still calling it rumors. Yeah. And then there's whole, you know, websites and so forth. But I've detached myself from, from that. I am very glad that I got what I did uh, from him. I'm glad that I never brought a young child to him. And it's a mystery. You know, I have a very intelligent and very, I would think, realized friend who also was a Sai Baba person, even after all that. And I said to him, how can you be part of that? And he said to me, I have no idea who he is or now, who he was. No idea. And I can understand that too. That whole person was so mysterious. And maybe people feel the same way about Trungpa and Muktananda and all the others. But for myself, you know, that person and what he was able to do with me and how he was able to read me and respond and so forth was so mysterious to me that this is just part of that mystery. 
kind of keeps you in a state of not being cocksure about things, you know, That's which, right. which is good. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> That's right. Uh, do you feel like you may still have skeletons in your closet in terms of constricted things and so on that you have not even yet discovered? And in the same question, do you feel like there finally comes a point for people at, at which the very last constriction is released and they're totally 100% pure as the driven snow? Um, to answer your first question, I don't think I have constrictions I don't know about uh -huh. at this point. Maybe I've you're been, still working on them. But, but I definitely have constrictions I'm still working on. I see. Yeah, absolutely. And I still have the scoliosis, and I'm still working on that. And that's also... Well, you, you know, may have that till the day you die, right? I mean, it's absolutely. Just, all of these constrictions I may have. fused. Yeah. Interestingly, Saibaba's take on it was that the whole thing was my imagination. That's what he said. I don't know, see? But I do know that I'm still working on myself in, in that way. And so that answers that question. Now, whether anyone is ever entirely free of constrictions, I don't know that either. Would we be able to walk right through the walls, you know, even en route to that? I don't know. I have no idea. Sometimes uh, in some various traditions and scriptures, they talk about bliss as being a really good litmus test of one's degree of integration and realization, like, you know, you're going to be in a sort of a state of infinite joy. Contact with Brahman is infinite joy, the, the Upanishads say. Marshi Mahesh Yogi used to talk about 24 hours bliss, and it, it pops up in a lot of traditions. And, and not only bliss in some kind of abstract sense, but even bliss in the body, feeling like every cell is blissful. Do you see that as a useful measure? And, or, or are there some other measures that you would say can indicate to a person to what extent they have progressed? I think the measure for me is the transparency, the complete openness, the feeling of being made of space and that everything else is made of space. Now, I do, in the, in the realization process, attune to the qualities of that space as awareness, emotion, and physical sensation, and the emotional ground is experienced as bliss. Not the kind of bliss that some of us, uh, including myself, have experienced at peak moments especially at the very beginning of our path, but a kind of every cell sort of good feeling. Nourished, right? profound sense of well-being and, and kind of like nourishment. That's right, yeah. profound sense of well-being. I think we can definitely aspire to mm. bliss. You know, when I've experienced actual bliss, it's, it's something that just takes you and I, I can't imagine anyone actually living in that state. Uh, <laughs> Maybe for 24 hours, I don't know. It didn't last that long for me. He meant 24-7. Oh, 24-7. That's yeah. really what he meant. Yeah, I don't think you'd be able to walk across the room like that, but, but I don't know. So, you know, that's beyond my knowledge. But, 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 though, don't we tend to acclimate? Isn't that an interesting thing about human beings, the way we can acclimate either to very severe degrees of suffering or very high degrees of, of happiness, and things become kind of matter-of-fact? Once, right. once we've acclimated and, you know, if we, if we were to somehow able to shift, if you were able to shift right now, for instance, to where you were at 30 years ago, you'd probably be writhing on the floor in agony, even though you weren't writhing then. It was acceptable. You had acclimated. Fast forward 10 years from now, you'd probably be, you know, drooling in ecstasy. <laughs> but, by, but by then, you'll, you, you will have totally adjusted to it. I think that's a good point. You know, we have these peak experiences and then they become quite ordinary. This open state, this non-dual state, to the extent that I've realized it, 
is a very sober state. It's a very sober state, <laughs> more sober than before I set out on my, on my path, I, you know, I mean, internally sober. So the good feeling, that profound feeling of well-being that you talk about, uh, that is part of that sober openness. It does persist even in painful moments, you know, of one's life, right? It's foundational. Um, it's an ongoing ground. So you promised to tell us about this core of your being that oh, you've alluded to a number of times, and that's okay. kind of really important in your teaching. That's right, the core of the being. We can experience a central channel, a very slender channel, like a tube. You know? Shushumna? Shushumna? Shushumna, okay. right? Shushumna, it's called in the yogic system. They talk about it in Buddhism as well, Tibetan Buddhism, and it's translated as the central channel. Shushumna is conceived of as having three uh, levels, one nested right within the other. And so this would be the innermost uh, core of Shashumna. Mm -hmm. It's experienced as a channel that runs from above the head through the whole vertical core of ourselves, our head, our neck, our torso, and below, right? So th that whole vertical core of ourselves. And when we can attune to it, and in the realization process, there's quite a bit of attuning to it and, and initiating the breath within it and that sort of thing. When we can attune to it and live there, we've gone all the way through to the center of our being and we're, we're living there, it's an entranceway into the pervasive space. And that's another way of saying that we can let go of ourself. We can let go of our grasp. So we're still going to be here, of course. We let go of our grasp on ourself and our environment from Shushumna, from that central channel, of subtle core of the body. So that's a, a really important part of the practice in the realization process. There's a lot of stuff that you say that seems very subtle, like you'd have to have really refined, discriminating awareness in order to experience it. Like, I mean, I've been meditating for a long time, and I've, I don't think I've ever experienced the shushumna. I think you could pretty easily. Uh -huh. Yeah. Interesting. What's your success rate in terms of students actually tuning in and, and experiencing this stuff that you, you're teaching them to experience? Pretty good, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, could, I could help you get to the Shushimna right, right now in about two minutes. So it, it's, it's really quite easy. Someone who's meditated as long as you and who, who's, as, uh, you know, who's as open as you are, mm -hmm. it's, it's really pretty easy. I do have ways of helping people find them, and that needs to be done in, in person. Sure. But then, you know, then initiating the breath within, that helps open that channel. And then we work with an upward coming current that comes from the center of the bottom of the torso and moves through that channel, just again as a way of, of opening and being able to live there and include that in the experience, opening into the fundamental consciousness. So pretty good. Every once in a while, it will take someone a couple of years to feel this pervasive space. That's yeah. not usually the case, but sometimes it is. And then they're like really surprised. Because by then they think I've been making it up. <laughs> like, space went all the way through the tree. Well, yeah. <laughs> and do you have a pretty good retention rate in terms of people learning this stuff and then continuing to practice it on their own? Because you know, you know how it is with spiritual practices, a lot of people drop out. Definitely, people come and go, there's no question. I have, I don't know if you want a number, it might be two thirds of the people who work with me who've been with me for several years and then maybe about one-third has been with me since the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. for decades. That's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But these are techniques that people can do on their own. Right. They don't need me. 
So, I mean, and that's part of what I like about the work. This has nothing to do with my presence or anything of that sort. These are, these are just techniques that they, once they know them, they can, they can do them on their own. And do most people come to know them by coming to New York or wherever you are and, and participating in a workshop? Or could, do you actually teach them, I mean, through this Sounds True audio program, um, it, can it be learned just as effectively through something like that? Well, that depends who it is. I mean, many people now are emailing me and saying, oh, they've been doing the exercise, you know, from the CDs. You know, without my guidance, I can help people find those real points. So it's possible that they're doing the core breath and they're not really in those core points. I do have, as part of the exercise, ways of testing that for them. For example, that each of these points enters you into the whole internal space of yourself at once. So if you're not feeling that, for example, if you're in the core of your heart chakra and it doesn't give you access to the inside of your feet, then you're not exactly in the core, the inside of your head at the same time, so forth. So there are, there are guidelines. So it may be that people are doing quite well without any guidance from me, just following the tapes. But then they usually do come to me and I teach all over. I do uh, workshops and I do teacher trainings. Travel around. I travel around and yeah. then I do a tele conference training, you know, training on the phone, which turns out to be extremely effective. You know, this is just the second year I'm doing that. And not only are people able to really get the exercises and practice them, but they bond with each other. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just been an amazing experience to do that. Seems like it would be good to come to some kind of retreat or something just to get away from the usual hubbub and give yourself a kickstart, you know, to get a nice, nice foundation with it, if, if, if that's possible for people. Probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm doing the relational workshop. You know, there's a whole relational aspect to the work because when two people both attune to fundamental consciousness, they experience a single transparency pervading them both, which is a very interesting thing. And it, it kind of is a sort of an argument for there really being this one space, you know. Well, I'm not going to go that far, but that's how it feels. And then we really are able to relate to each other, not from the surface of ourselves, but from the inner depth. And so there's a whole relational part. So the next workshop I'm teaching is in New Mexico, the beginning of November, and that's just on the relational work. You don't need to bring a partner, but it's all of that, you know, being in yourself and yet feeling oneness with another person. It's funny, sometimes people gripe that my show is supposed to be about um, conversations with ordinary spiritually awakening people. And some people say, well, why do you always just have these teachers on? You know, why not just more unknown people that are just ordinary? And part of the reason is that they're unknown. I don't know about him. You know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. You should contact him. <laughs> yeah, right. But another part of the reason is that sometimes people can have a profound awakening of some sort, and they, they may be pretty good at describing it or not, because they may not be in the habit of expounding, yes. you know, and so they might sort of have a hard time describing it. But even if they're good at describing it, they may have no way whatsoever of conveying it to anybody else, or helping anybody else have that sort of experience. Yeah, sure. So I really do respect people. I think it, in, in a, it's interesting to talk to those kinds of people, and that sometimes I do when I find them, but it's also interesting and I think perhaps more valuable to talk to people like yourself who actually have something to offer so that others can make progress themselves and, and have this sort of realization that people who are listening to a show like this are, are interested in. Yeah, yeah thank you. And then there's, all, there's those who gripe that, well, they're all charging money. 
but you have to eat. And we don't come down too hard on a, a psychologist that we go to or a medical doctor or so on for charging money for their services. They have perhaps families to support and all the usual stuff that everybody has to do. Um, I mean, I actually had somebody say last week, you know, why do they all have to charge money? Why don't they just um, drive a truck or something? Well, if they're driving a truck, then they're not going to be able to have the time to do you know, any kind of teaching. So I'm just addressing this because it's come up a number of times recently. And I just want to voice my opinion about it, which I mean, and obviously people get carried away and sometimes costs are exorbitant and, it, and they start getting and driving around in fancy cars and so on. So it can be taken to extremes, yes. but I don't get the sense you're doing that. No, I have a Subaru. I, Me too. <laughs> in fact, everyone in Woodstock has a Subaru. Yeah. <laughs> Probably in Iowa. I think that the teachers were always supported by the community. They always were brought food and, you know, they were always fed. Had, and, had and, a place to live and all. And given the place to live and cared for. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they were, they were all kind of local. You know, we didn't have the Internet and, or airplanes and so forth. So this, you know, of course, is an extension of that, but it's it's true. This is definitely the way I make my living. If I made my living in some other way, I wouldn't be able to do this, and and I wouldn't have even have been able to do my own meditation practice. Yeah. So I guess we covered that point. I mean, and and I guess another addendum to it is just that traditionally, a lot of times in more ancient cultures, which you read about in these books, we're talking about ashrams and we're talking about monastic people who didn't have as much, they didn't have Subarus, you know, <laughs> they, didn't have, right. they didn't have to buy health insurance and all the various expenses of modern living. Um, so most of the spiritual teachers these days are householders paying for houses and uh, it costs actual money to, to live in our modern society. So some, there has to be some sort of material exchange like that in, in return for their services. I think another part of it, too, is it makes it clear, you know, I mean, I, I know I like to make it clear in my life that I am not a guru. You can't come and sit with me and get enlightened. Is your husband I enlightened? Don't so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really think so. Um, I'm not telling people how to live either. Right. You know, I mean, that's another thing that comes up. What about the ethical part of this? Well, not that's you, not, I don't consider that toolkit. my job to tell people how to think, how to behave. They're on their own with that. So I'm not a guru. I am an ordinary person. Mm -hmm. I'm an ordinary person who has realized this pervasive space. And we can really all realize it. If we're, if we're interested in it, then we have enough openness, no doubt, to be able to do that. And it's true, the difference between me and other ordinary people who've realized themselves is that I've come up with these, these practices. Mm -hmm. And that's because of my own particular history of first teaching dance, where I was teaching practices, and then having to heal myself. I like to anticipate audience questions. I suppose some people might say, well, isn't that a bit of hubris coming up with your own practices, you know, when there's all these ancient traditions. But again, I don't have a problem with that. Your practices to me sound well, reminiscent of, of some types of other practices, but, you know, you, you present the whole thing in a, a very practical way. And obviously, you know, the proof is in the pudding. People are getting results from these things. So why not something somewhat new if it works? Yeah, I think it's very good that there are some people who are going to keep the traditions alive mm -hmm. and that then there are other people who are going to innovate, you know. So as long as we have both going, we don't lose the traditions. You know, we always have that to go to. Yeah, and it's even debatable as to whether what's currently taught in the name of Buddhism, for instance, is actually what the Buddha was teaching. So, you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Same question with Christianity, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, very much so. Wow. So only a new seed will yield a new crop. Okay, so this has been pretty thorough. Is there anything important that we left out due to my not having thought to ask you about it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you really covered all the bases on this. Great, good. Thank you very much for doing this then. I'll just conclude. Really enjoyed talking to you. Maybe I'm just feeling very settled today, but sometimes I get kind of speedy and I talk too much, but I feel like you've had a settling influence on me and <laughs> kept me kind of in a nice grounded state. Wonderful. <laughs> so I've been speaking with Judith Blackstone, and I read her whole introduction at the beginning, but she'll have her own page on batgap.com, and I'll be linking from that page to her websites, realizationcenter.com and nondualityinstitute.org, as well as to this, her several books. I'll have links to those books on Sounds True or Amazon. As always, there are a number of things you can do if you come to batgap.com. There's a forum section where each guest has their own little section in the forum, so there'll be a section for Judith and a link to that section from her page in case you, get, you want to get involved in a discussion about what we've been doing. And there is a place to be notified by email of um, new interviews. You can sign up to, to be notified. There's a donation button, as I mentioned in the beginning, which I really appreciate and rely upon people using from time to time. There are several different ways in which all these interviews are indexed. You'll see a past interviews menu, and you can see alphabetical, chronological, or, you know, categorical, and so on. Oh, there's an audio podcast, and actually more, more people listen to the, the audio podcast than actually watch the videos. So there's a link with each interview uh, to the audio podcast where you can subscribe to that on iTunes. So thanks again, Judith. Thank um, you. It's been Thank great you. speaking with you. Thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Next week is Teal Swan. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you.